So tonight I'd like to take up the theme of wise effort again and focus in particular on the second half of the four great endeavors. So when I was talking about the Eightfold Path in the last two talks, I mentioned that the first of the meditative steps on the Eightfold Path had to do with wise effort, followed by wise mindfulness and wise concentration. It's interesting that he would break out effort as a particular thing and talk about it very specifically in the path, but in a way that is really resonant all the way through the teachings because the Buddha talks a lot, a lot about effort. A lot about effort. So if you understand our baseline situation as human beings is uh, being lost in or enmeshed in uh, diluted suffering, in order to become non-diluted and a free being, requires something of us. We, in a certain kind of way, need to come into confrontation with the delusion that we hold and start to penetrate it with the light of wisdom until it becomes uh, more partly cloudy initially and then eventually uh, mostly sunny clear, blue, open sky. So in in looking at at what the Buddha is talking about with wise effort in the Eightfold Path, he says there's four things. The first is to prevent the unarisen, unwholesome states from arising. So in order to do that, you either have to be an arhant <clears throat> or have a completely sustained mindfulness as a fire suppressant, So, which probably would be equivalent to being a fully awakened <laughs> being. But alas, that is not our situation. But the second part of dealing with unwholesome states has to do with learning how to relate to them in a way that undercuts their footing, that reduces their power in the immediate, in the mind stream, and decreases uh, their proliferation. Moving, of course, ultimately in the direction of uprooting these when the mind is fully awakened. But even before the mind is fully awakened, there are many ways in which these forces of unwholesomeness are weakened, become less uh, frequent visitors, become weaker when they're there. We struggle less with them, we suffer less with them as this process goes on. And practice in this particular way has everything to do with learning to recognize the hindrances when they're there. 
recognizing the hindrances or other unwholesome states and knowing what to do. And a lot, a lot of practice takes place in this area. And I'm sure everybody here has heard the teachings on the hindrances, right? Uh, Craving and aversion are the top of the bill, but then there's sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry and doubt. So just learning to recognize them in practice is really a big thing. So how do we learn to recognize them? Well, part of it is hearing the teachings that describe what is to be cultivated and what is to be let go. And hearing some teachings around the hindrances and what they're like when they come up. And and what the particular remedies or strategies there are for relating to them when they're present. So the first two parts of wise effort have to do with uh, the suffering states born from delusion. Now, that leads us to the second part of wise effort, which is talked about a lot less often. Why? Because (laughs) it's not a problem in a certain kind of way. You know, we always tend to, I don't know, recognize or orient towards uh, what we struggle with. There's a certain negativity bias in the mind, if you want to put it that way. So it's easier for us to see what isn't working or what hurts sometimes than recognizing, oh, what's onward leading, what actually might be wholesome. So the the third step of wise effort is along the lines of uh, to rouse wholesome states of mind. In other words, to use our attentional capacities and the, the wisdom that we've learned in, in practice and hearing the teachings to recognize what kinds of states, intentions, actions are onward leading and to be cultivated and actually see if we can do something to bring them into being. Now, fortunately for us, there are already a lot of wholesome states, intentions, and actions present. If there weren't, you would never be here. You would might be in a different kind of institution but you wouldn't be here. So just as in working with hindrances, part of the initial step is recognizing what the hindrances are so they become more easily conscious to you when they're present. This is also the case for wholesome states. So let's do a little Rolodex journey through some of the wholesome states just to bring them to mind. 
So uh, the first of these, or a first of these, in part because uh, this particular quality of mind is always present with every wholesome state, is mindfulness or sati. Mindfulness. So just by being here and cultivating mindfulness, being here recognizing mindfulness when it's present, you are arousing a wholesome state. And all the uh, exhortations that we give to you about continuity and maintaining uh, mindfulness as you go about the day has to do with keeping this wholesome mental factor going. And, you know, the understanding is that one moment of mindfulness conditions the arising of another. And it's easier in a certain kind of way to keep it rolling, this stream of mindfulness to keep it rolling than to do the start and stop. It's a little bit like uh, trying to get an old school Model T car going on a day like this. So the old school Model T cars, you know, you didn't have like a battery and all that stuff that you just turn the key and it'd turn over. First you had to do this. Actually stick a literal crank in the front of the car and crank it and crank it and crank it and crank it and try to get something going there. I'm sure I'll get a note from somebody who knows about engines, about what exactly goes on. But I'm just using this image, okay? Get it cranking, 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 going. That's the hard way. You know? If mindfulness is already there in the mind, if you're already in this, uh, uh, having that arise, just to keep it going. Continuity. The intention of continuity, continuity. So you know from, probably from some of your hearing of Dharma talks or your study, that um, there are these things called the seven factors of awakening. People heard that teaching before. And this is basically a description of how the mind moves in the the direction of liberation. So the Buddhist teachings look very closely at questions of cause and effect. Basic understanding is everything arises because of causes and conditions. And the implication is, therefore, if we understand the causes and conditions, we can ourselves perhaps orient our attention 
turn our consciousness, use that capacity in a certain kind of way where we can become active participants in this chain of causation that leads to liberation. So the teaching on the seven factors of awakening basically describes how one factor supports the arising of the next factor and the next factor and the next factor. So you've got a wholesome progression leading the mind in the direction that we want it to go because we want the mind to be free. So the seven factors of awakening, mindfulness, sati, the first one, and the second is investigation, investigation. Investigation is what mindfulness does. It answers the the question, what is here right now? And what is here right now? And what is the mind doing with what is here right now? So here there's a a recognition of what the experience is within the context of the teachings. Is it wholesome? Is it unwholesome? Is it an experience of the body? Is it uh, an experience of the mind? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Right? This is all four foundations of mindfulness. territory there. So mindfulness investigates the present moment experience, which is a different thing than thinking about it and like chewing on it intentionally, although thinking may occur, reflection is part of this too, but it's more, tends to more towards an experiential kind of knowing or noticing. And then the next thing that arises from that is energy. So this very process of uh, investigative attention generates energy. And from this arises what's called rapture, but it really means interest, a kind of pleasurable interest in what is being known. If you had the experience in your practice uh, at one point of the mind just becoming just really curious about what the experience is, you know, and it can be something that's just very seemingly small, like, oh, I noticed there was this one time I was in the meditation hall and I heard this sound and a picture, internal image of a bird arose and it was pleasant. Oh, now I'm in the hall, there's a sound, I know it's a bird, now it's unpleasant. Why, why is it, it's the same kind of sound, why is it unpleasant now when it was pleasant before? Right? So the mind doesn't necessarily uh, benefit from going into big digressions about this kind of thing. But this description is just a way of pointing to the fact that, okay, in one case, the Vedana that arose was such, 
pleasant. In another situation, the Vedna that arose was such, and it was unpleasant. But the subjectivity of the sensory experience was very similar. Oh. Maybe the experience isn't like totally in the sense experience. Maybe the experience is something other than just the thing. There's what the mind does with the thing. Hmm. So, you know, this kind of very small example is part of and it, uh, what investigation does and how it, the mind can become very interested in these seemingly micro experiences. You know, we come on retreat very often, we're, we're looking for, hoping for, you know, like some big gigantic experience that's going to like ar- arise and everything is, you know, going to get all cleared up and we're going to be like a totally transform kind of person and, you know, never have that bad mind state again. You never be cranky. But really, it's interesting because the mind seems to develop and wake up more on the basis of an accumulation of wisdom and understanding through connection to moment-by-moment experience. And then at a certain point, something flips, and there's a new understanding there. Or something flips, and a habit that was formerly clung to is seen as unwholesome and something that the mind is now willing to let go of. So investigation leads to this kind of rapt curiosity about immediate experience. And from that, there then opens calm and tranquility. Certain kind of, now the mind is interested. So it's moving in the direction of calmness in relationship to Uh, what is known, it's less agitated, less bouncing around from aversion and craving. Now it's more like just with what's there. And being in a contented or interested way with what's just there is the threshold for the development of concentration. This unification of mind, this non-distractedness of mind that further allows us to see what's there because now the mind's energies are like right there with what's happening. Whether it's a broad um, kind of awareness or whether it's a very zoomed in focused one, the mind is not distracted with what is known, from what is known. And from that develops equanimity, upekka. 
where the mind may still have preferences, but it doesn't really operationalize them in the same kind of way in relationship to what arises in immediate experience. There's more stability of mind. The mind knows unpleasant as unpleasant. It knows pleasant as pleasant. It knows wholesome as wholesome and unwholesome as unwholesome. It just knows. Which is a way of saying it's in a non-diluted state. It's an interesting kind of way this whole practice of um, mindfulness in Vipassana meditation is the practice of non-delusion. It's almost as if by following the rules of practice and summoning and develop mindfulness we're, and hearing the teachings, we're saying to ourselves, okay, honey, now don't look over, no, 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 now pay attention. What's right here? What's right here? What do you know right now? Is that a, is that a hearing? That's a hearing. And is it pleasant or is it unpleasant? Oh, it's an emotion. It's an emotion. And and is it a wholesome one or is it an unwholesome one? Which emotion is that? What What is the mind state that's happening right now? Oh. And as you have that experience, what is the experience in the body? What does that feel like in the body? Oh, it's tightness. Oh, tightness. Is that unpleasant? Yeah, unpleasant. What's the mind doing with that unpleasantness? Oh, it's fighting it. Oh, okay. Fighting it, that's aversion. Okay, aversion. Oh, is aversion a body sensation? Oh, yeah, it's fiery, fiery. And is that pleasant or that unpleasant? Oh, that's pleasant. Oh, it's pleasant. Oh, do you want more of that? (laughs) Right? So there's a certain kind of way in these very simple set of instructions. It's like, especially combined with the skillful use of noting, is really requiring us to just be in the present tense zone, recognize the experience that we're having in real time and acknowledge it. Bring wise attention to it. And this is the way that we start to squeeze the delusion out of the mind. We can recognize the presence of views and opinions. We can recognize the preference of the presence of preferences. Longings, memories, grief, anything, anything can be part of this field of awakening if we learn how to bring wise attention to it. This is how purification of mind happens. So this is an example of a wholesome cycle or a spiral of these particular qualities of mind that are further developed and strengthened as the practice goes 
along. So recognizing those as arisings in real time supports us in summoning them, bringing them into being by our wise attention. But those aren't the only wholesome factors of mind. So we have the case of the four attitudinal trainings, right? The presence in the mind of goodwill, metta, compassion, karuna, empathetic joy, mudita, equanimity, upekka. You notice there's a repeater there from the first list. Equanimity can be both a a state and an attitude. Equanimity. Interesting that that is is emphasized so much in this uh, set of teachings. Sometimes it's referred to as uh, the capstone of the Buddhist teachings. High equanimity, the imperturbable mind. So those can be present in your practice and you can notice those. And it's important to notice those because usually we tend to notice what is unpleasant and difficult and experienced as problematic. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on that isn't unpleasant or problematic or difficult. So let's take a look at another list, which is the list of the paramitas. Now, I think probably a lot of you have heard this teaching too. So these, this list is, uh, of qualities uh, is sometimes also titled perfections of the heart. Perfections of the heart. And these are generosity. If you know about the Buddha's progressive teaching, how he would often offer it to communities who were interested in his teachings, he would often start with the teaching of generosity encourage people to this uh, willingness to share what one has with others and to find happiness in that. So there's a lot of reference to generosity in in the teachings. Because if you think about it, the practice of generosity is, is the practice of 
non-grasping, non-clinging. When the mind is generous, the mind goes, here, have some. Here, have some. Here, have some. Here, have some. It can actually bring a lot of joy to the mind. You know, there are other forms of generosity besides literal physical sharing of of resources. There's kind of a generosity of uh, spirit, too. You know, somebody does something that you don't like or you disapprove of. You know, is is the mind kind of... uh, willing to give the benefit of the doubt is the mind willing to see, well, that's a moment where that person was really worked up and they weren't at their best. But they're not that way all the time. I'm not talking about diluted here, a diluted relationship to the unskillfulness of others, but... I'm talking more about the tendency of mind that cuts people some slack when it's appropriate. So generosity is one of the paramis. Then there's a virya or energy effort. You may have noticed that this is a repeater from the list of the seven factors of awakening. It's also a repeater from the five spiritual faculties, which is uh, another teaching where the Buddha talks about qualities of mind, heart and mind and how they open to support um, practice. Patience. practice of patience has to do with the acceptance of the present experience. It's really uh, important. In fact, some uh, teachers refer to this as the most important of the paramis. Because it takes... Keeping on, keeping on, keeping on, keeping on, keeping on. Moment by moment by moment by moment. Remembering what you're about. Not grasping, not insisting. Not letting yourself get taken away by frustration or, or despair or collapse of confidence or any of those things. But just, well... This is how it is right now. At this moment, rocky uphill path. At this moment, apparent backslide. That's okay. Where's the concentration? I've been hanging out with the breath all day. Where is it? In other words, there's an element of equanimity being called for here and and not letting yourself get thrown by what you encounter in the practice path. 
then there's renunciation. Renunciation. I think I'm going to give a whole talk on renunciation. I can remember once being over at the retreat center and Christine Feldman was there and she was talking to a group of us. I think it must have been staff. But we were in the hall. I was on staff for quite a while and she was talking about the Dharma and teaching the Dharma and stuff. And somebody asked her what she thought was the most undertaught aspect of the Dharma in the West. And she said, renunciation. That culturally, you know, this idea of uh, non-grasping and the mind being willing to not go for it, what it imagines would be to not have the whole psyche and life energy set up to looking at what it could get right now that might be pleasant, that would be good to have. You know, that radar dish of the mind. Beep, 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 beep. Renunciation, a mind that's willing to let go in the interest of higher priorities. And not be sucked into the distraction of pursuing what might immediately be pleasant at the expense of something else that's got a lot more potentiality. But anyway, more about that maybe next week. Then there's truthfulness. Now you probably recognize truthfulness from the precepts that you took tonight. So why speech? This is an aspect of it. It's interesting, the Buddha as a bodhisattva apparently did a lot of bad things. So he did a lot of things. Some of the things he did were, over the course of these many lifetimes, allegedly were things that probably none of us have done. (laughs) They were that bad, at least some of them. But anyway, it is said that the one thing that the Bodhisattva never did was intentionally lie. I just find that a very interesting thing. So how does does truthfulness fit into and support practice? Say with insight practice, but any of the practices really. Well, can the mind acknowledge to itself what it is actually experiencing. So there's that level of it. 
like what's here right now is the predominant experience. Oh, actually, this is a state of rage at the moment. (laughs) This is rage and this is despair. Oh. And you can see the, the role of sati or mindfulness there, that kind of a, a neutral, mirror-like knowing of what's there. And then just the mind being willing to acknowledge what's there, even sometimes when it's not pretty or it's a non-preferred experience. Can it just acknowledge it in a neutral kind of way? And then, you know, the another aspect of practicing with this is will you tell it to the teacher? So there's a whole whole lot about practice meetings, but you know, truthfulness in terms of what you're actually experiencing is uh, very beneficial and sometimes cathartic. You know, certainly we'll get better advice. Then there is resolve. Resolve. Resolution, it's sometimes mentioned as. So just like, no. I'm going to do it. Yes, I could go do that. Yes, I could go do that. And going and doing something else can be a source of wisdom, right? Can be uh, a way to balance. But resolve. What is the, the priority? And why? Wisdom is one of the paramitas. This is interesting because it's kind of an emergent property, you could say. Understanding cause and effect, understanding foreground and context, bringing the mind of wisdom forward. The teaching of the Buddha is that it's actually wisdom that liberates the mind. Mindfulness is is the way. Mindfulness allows us to develop wisdom support its arising and its opening. Sila, moral restraint, is one of the perfections of the heart. It's the direct practice of non-harming. So you could say that the practice of moral restraint is the renunciation practice of not doing things that get us into trouble and cause trouble or pain for others. 
And then there's goodwill, goodwill, which of course is one of the Brahma Viharas too. And equanimity again, equanimity. So seeing any of those in your, in your mind, and I'm sure you all have many of these arise in the course of a practice day. So to practice with the second part of wise intention, you would actually want to notice and name those when they're present. Maybe you actually note those to yourself. Oh, this is equanimity. Oh, this is wisdom now. This is renunciation. This is resolve. This is truthfulness. This is moral restraint. And to mention a couple of other things that are things that you're likely to see arising. There is gratitude. A number of you have have mentioned that in the practice meetings, that that's just something that's there. You know, gratitude for the, you being here, gratitude for the place that this is and everything that went into it. Gratitude for the teachings. Gratitude to your people at home who supported you coming, you know. Gratitude for enough health to be able to do the practice. Gratitude to be in a place that's safe. Gratitude to be around people who are on the same path. Gratitude is very wholesome. And then, of course, there is faith. The first of the five spiritual faculties. And what what does it mean? faith, sadha, in this kind of context. Well, it doesn't mean what we often associate with the word. So I I can remember when I was a kid growing up in a, a particular religious environment, which you know, the joke, the joke in my mother's family was, my mother's Irish. The joke in my mother's family was, we've been, we've been Catholic since St. Patrick came to Ireland. <laughs> right? So, the, you know, the Irish Catholic, uh, Religious training. A lot beautiful about it, actually. The older I get, the more more I see the things that were really skillful and wholesome and helped contribute to a lot of... a lot of what I had to work with in both senses of the word. (laughs) But anyway... So that whole 
that whole way, you know, there's a statement of faith. You know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, right? It starts like that, and then, you know, it goes on to the particulars about things. Here, we take the refuges and the precepts. The understanding with that is, in taking the refuges, we're clarifying what we're practicing. We're practicing relying on the Buddha as a teacher and on our own potentiality to awaken. Because the understanding is we share the same potentiality as the Buddha does. We're saying, okay, I'm going to turn to this, I'm going to work off this set of assumptions. We turn attention to the Dhamma. The teachings of the Buddha are what we're practicing. But another way to understand taking refuge in the Dhamma is taking refuge in what is true. And we all know there are many sources of truth, right? There's the truth of science, there's the truth of mathematics, there's the truth, right? They're different, different sources of truth. So we're never asked to try to jam everything into a predetermined view. And in fact, blind faith is not considered to be a desirable thing within Buddhism. Because the role of investigation of the Buddha's truth claims is understood to be how we wake up. Uh, And one of the, the Buddha's common refrains was to people he was talking to and then, come and check it out. Check it out. See for yourself. Take these teachings, explore them, put them into effect in your own life. See. See if it works. See if it's true or see if it see if it isn't. There's a whole sermon to the Kalamas, which is a very famous teaching of the Buddha where he speaks to a group of people and says, who asked him how you know what to believe, because we hear all these teachings from all these different teachers, and he gives them the rundown. And basically, the bottom line was, well, investigate it for yourself. (laughs) Don't just believe it, because somebody tells you. And then the third thing we take refuge in is the Sangha, which is the... One way to think of this classically is the 
community of monastic practitioners in particular, those who have attained some degree of liberation. But of course it has a broader meaning here uh, in the West. We tend to think of this as well. This is the community of practitioners. This is, uh, has to do with our fellow wayfarers. Those who are on the path with us. As for whether craving causes suffering or not, or whether everything is impermanent, or whether the mind can be liberated and purified, that's up to you to figure out. (laughs) You test it. So then what is this faith thing that's called for as part of this? It seems to have something to do with the confidence to wholeheartedly run the experiment. So in a certain kind of way, it's more about you. Can you at least provisionally rest your heart upon this process of investigation and practice in order to see what happens? So faith is a wholesome quality when understood in this kind of way. So those are all qualities, intentions, actions, impulses, internal experiences that can arise in your practice in real time that you can notice. And it's good to notice them because they're, they're half of wise effort. <laughs> to bring them forward, to develop them. That's, that's half of it. And, you know, I spoke at the beginning of m- mindfulness or sati being an important aspect of all of this because it's mindfulness, once you've heard the teachings that have pointed out for you what some of these qualities of of mind and heart are, it's mindfulness that supports you in being able to recognize them. So maybe that's, that's a way that you can practice for a while, is actually inclining the mind to notice that, those kinds of things, the seven factors of awakening, the four Brahma-viharas, the paramitas, generosity, faith. All of those things, when they're there, because they are there, or they are often there, something like that. 
And part of the the way the practice um, opens over time is the presence of these kinds of wholesome states um, known mindfully tends to support the arising of additional wholesome states and intentions following it. So, have fun with that. I'd be curious to hear in practice meetings what you're noticing. Because you're not all always grumpy or whatever, greedy or whatever. There's other stuff. Or discouraged or whatever. There are other things too. You don't want to always be given a negative review. It's much too one-sided. Okay, let's chant the sharing of blessings together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.